It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to Postscript a new books and political science series in which authors bring their expertise to pressing contemporary political issues. I'm Susan Lee Bell at St. Joseph's University, and today we engage the criminalization of abortion and miscarriage, the elimination of exceptions for rape and incest, the political and legal legal repercussions of the Supreme Court's ruling on Texas SB 8, and yesterday's news from the FDA making medication abortions more accessible to some women in the United States. I'm joined by two of the country's most celebrated legal scholars of abortion, both known for their commitment to placing legal regimes in their historical context and their work as public intellectuals as they consistently contribute their expertise to the public discourse. Professor Michelle Goodwin is a Chancellor's Professor of Law at the University of California, Irvine Law School, and is the founding director of their Center for Biotechnology and Global Health Policy. Her teaching and research interests include bioethics, constitutional law, family law, health law, reproductive rights, and torts. Most recently, she is the author of Policing the Womb, Invisible Women and the Criminalization of Motherhood, published by Cambridge University Press in 2020, and she has a forthcoming article on implicit bias in the Yale Law Review. Her widely read piece in the New York Times interrogates the impact of abortion on girls who are raped by family members. Professor Mary Ziegler is the Stearns Weaver Miller Professor at Florida State University College of Law, and she'll be visiting professor at Harvard Law School this spring. A specialist in the legal history of reproduction, the family, sexuality, and the Constitution, her most recent book is Abortion and the Law in America, A Legal History, Roe v. Wade to the Present. She has a Yale University Press book forthcoming this spring called Dollars for Life, The Anti-Abortion Movement and the Fall of the Republican Establishment. Dr. Ziegler's public-facing scholarship includes her recent piece in The Atlantic, exploring the constitutional chaos that may be created as other states deploy Texas's anti-abortion bounty system. Welcome to Postscript, Michelle and Mary. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Thanks, Susan. About two weeks ago, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments in Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Associate Organization. Mississippi's law bans nearly all abortions after 15 weeks of gestational age before the fetus is viable outside the womb. While the law provides some exceptions, it does not provide one for rape or incest. There's been a great deal of commentary about the oral arguments as they seem to indicate that five of the justices were prepared to overturn a right to abortion grounded in the liberty protected by the 14th Amendment's due process clause. 
But I'd like to start with something that didn't get as much attention, though both of you wrote about it before oral arguments. Justice Clarence Thomas said the Supreme Court had a case, quote, out of South Carolina, and it involved a woman who'd been convicted of criminal child neglect because she ingested cocaine during pregnancy and her case was post-viability. So it doesn't fit in the facts of this case. If she had ingested cocaine pre-viability and had the same negative consequences to her child, do you think the state had an interest in enforcing the law against her? Close quote. That line of questioning floored me. And I understood the implications because of the work Michelle has done on criminalizing pregnancy. It also introduced an agenda that you both wrote about in the Atlantic before oral arguments, the efforts of the anti-abortion movement to establish the fetus as a rights-holding person. Michelle, can you unpack the implications of Justice Thomas's question for us? Sure. And it's important to understand that that line of questioning roots in an agenda that is decades old. In the 1980s and 90s, Black women were essentially the canaries in the coal mine as a certain level of agenda was set about personhood and embryos and fetuses. Because it wasn't connected to abortion, many organizations that work on behalf or advocacy organizations that seek to expand or strengthen abortion rights really weren't paying attention. And that is in these instances where police and prosecutors were aligning themselves with medical professionals and medical professionals were aligning themselves with police and prosecutors, they were creating a virtual dragnet, some formal, some informal but the very idea was that if a black woman had used some form of an illicit drug during her pregnancy, then this was a threat to the personhood of the embryos or fetuses. And that was sufficient to uh, bring criminal charges against these women, whether they had miscarriages, stillbirths, or had babies that were born perfectly healthy and fine. In fact, prosecutors began using uh, laws that were not connected to. Uh, parenting, well, laws that were not uh, connected to uh, fetuses and embryos um, to bring about this kind of criminal uh, adjudicating. For example, there were prosecutors that used existing child abuse statutes as a means to uh, go after these women, or they used uh, drug trafficking laws, basically positioning these women as if they were uh, leaders of cartels that were trafficking drugs to youth. Um, law at that time didn't make a way that was explicit for the criminalization of women in their conduct with regard to their embryos and fetuses. But these prosecutors who clearly were also influenced by anti-abortion movements were able to strategize in this way. I mean, so if you look at it in that way, we've already had precedent being established for the criminalization of pregnant women vis-a-vis conduct involving their fetuses. Now, one point that I would also like to make clear that's really important as we think about those South Carolina, North Carolina, Florida, and other uh, states where these cases were about, Mississippi too, and that is that what we know empirically is that the claims that were being made by police and prosecutors actually were quite unfounded. This idea that because there is the ingestion of an illicit drug during pregnancy, that that is exactly the reason why a miscarriage took place, or that is exactly why a stillbirth 
took place. And I think of the case of Regina McKnight, the first person who was actually prosecuted in the United States uh, and convicted uh, for having a stillbirth, convicted of murder for having a stillbirth. Eventually, her case was actually overturned. So even in conservative Southern states, eventually the judges got it right. But by the time that that happened, Regina had served years in prison. And why do you think he brought it up in this case? Well, let's be clear that when President Trump was running for office, he later walked back commentary about punishing pregnant women and punishing women who sought to have abortions. You know, let's be clear that this is the making of a comprehensive type of a space of policing women's conduct during pregnancy. And I think also there's this rationale that if the state could claim that it had some form of an interest uh, vis-a-vis women who were actually carrying their pregnancies to term and not seeking to have abortions, then why wouldn't the state also have an interest in the instances when women are actually seeking to have uh, abortions? Uh, If the state could make the claim that to harm a fetus was in fact committing some crime such as murder, such as assault, such as child abuse, why couldn't we apply that same theoretical framing to an abortion? Isn't an abortion, according to that logic, the harming, the killing, the maiming of now the person, right? And let's be clear, that's not my position. And we should also be clear that historically, that was not the position of American courts as well, dating back more than a century. This is not the first time that some of these questions have arisen as to whether women can be criminalized for conduct involving fetuses. More than a century ago, Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, when he was serving in the Massachusetts Supreme Court, emphatically said, no, (laughs) it wasn't just in one case. There were cases where courts throughout the United States said that no, there was no criminal, uh, it was not, um, it was inconsistent with American law values and principles to criminalize and punish women uh, in association with their pregnancies, even if a woman neglected her child immediately after birth and did not breastfeed it or provide other kinds of attention. Courts said that could not be criminally punished. And so we're in a very different era today. Something else that really puzzled me in the Dobbs arguments was the near silence on rape and incest. Um, Mississippi's law has no exception for rape or incest. Solicitor General Elizabeth Prelogger, representing the United States' interest, mentioned rape and incest once. Justice Sotomayor mentioned rape only once. Uh, You co-authored a superb article called Whatever Happened to the Exceptions for Rape and Incest in the Atlantic? And I think it would be helpful to start with the history of these exceptions before we answer the question that you posed, whatever happened to the exceptions. Um, so, so can we start there? When do these exceptions come about in the United States? Um, who, who brings them forward and what happens? Sure. I mean, I can, I can talk about that. Um, everybody can hear me okay? Yeah? Okay, great. Um, so... Uh, the rape and incest exceptions were relatively late coming part of the discussion. So there were exceptions, as Michelle mentioned, 
um, there was really no need for exceptions for some time because the common law tradition, at least early in pregnancy, was that abortion wouldn't be treated as a crime until quickening. And historians debate exactly how much the, the quickening doctrine was a thing, you know, to what extent it reflected moral norms as well as legal ones. But it, it's pretty clear that abortion wasn't criminalized early in pregnancy in most instances. Um, when states did criminalize abortion in the late 19th century, the only exceptions they made were sort of life of the pregnant person exceptions, um, because there was a built-in assumption of fetal personhood, and only life of the pregnant person exceptions really make sense if you, you begin with the premise of fetal personhood. So rape and incest exceptions came along later as part of the abortion reform movement. And there was a, a major kind of controversial case in the UK um, in earlier decades that involved both um, rape and incest. And a court there had found a doctor not to be legally liable, um, even though that abortion did not appear to be authorized by law. At the time, this case was called Rex versus Bourne. And I think the premise being that the, it, it was just against society's moral intuitions to punish a physician for performing an abortion in that instance. So when the American uh, abortion reform movement got going, rape and incest exceptions became a part of the conversation almost immediately, even though they didn't really fit the blueprint for reform that was being forged, which focused mostly on what reformers sort of saw as normalizing existing medical practice. So if doctors thought something was good for the health of the patient, they should just ratify those changes. If doctors thought a fetus had a condition incompatible with life, the law should just ratify those changes. Rape and incest didn't really fit that model. So instead, what you saw was this sort of odd <laughs> debate about the innocence of women, really. So the idea that um, if the law codified elective abortion, that would result in promiscuity. But if the law allowed for abortion in cases of rape or incest, in other words, where women didn't choose the consequences of sex because they didn't choose sex at all, then that would be in keeping with um, reformers' idea of justice. So rape and incest exceptions became a kind of cardinal part of the reform movement. And then they became quite popular thereafter, too. So once even though they, they were sort of late to the party, if you will, they became a standard part of debate and something like a subject of consensus in an abortion debate where, you know, there's very little, obviously, of consensus to be found. And I think you note in the article that there's a popular opinion consensus. I, I think the number you yeah, list it's, is it's 80. extraordinary. Yeah, I mean, and, and the other 80%. thing percent. The other thing that's extraordinary about the consensus is it's very high among Republicans, too. This is not a situation where there's a, a strong consensus, but then when you break out what opinion among conservatives or Republicans is, the consensus falls apart. This is a scenario where you have majorities of Democrats, Republicans, and independents all in agreement on rape and incest exceptions. Well, the fundamental question has to be, if you do what Renee Bracey Sherman says, and she's an abortion storyteller and helps people tell their stories, and she says, in the brief that she submitted uh, in the Dobbs case, she and over 6,000 signatories look us in the face, right? You know, what uh, Republican wants to look in the face, a 10-year-old who's been raped and say, yes, but we think that uh, you should carry your rapist uh, baby to term, uh, knowing or fetus to term, 
knowing that in the process, your body might be harmed, you might be psychologically scarred, and we have no even question about what happens afterwards. Um, So to your point, Mary, the sort of broad consensus, I think it's such a broad consensus because there is a an underlying fundamental moral question here. And when you look into the eyes and face of a nine-year-old, 10-year-old, 12-year-old, or a 35-year-old woman who's been brutalized and gang raped, and you say that this is your additional punishment, who's to make that decision? Who in the world can make that decision for that person who's been brutalized? And how is it anything other than additional punishment? Yeah, and I think one thing that Michelle says that's right, that makes this whole conversation creepier, is that it, it absolutely is about punishment, right? And I think one of the things we, we wanted to touch on in the Atlantic piece is that the disappearance of rape and incest exceptions has a political dimension as well, because, of course, the talking point for many years for the anti-abortion movements, for, for very sound reasons, was that the movement was not going to punish women and pregnant people because they were victims too, right? The idea was that abortion providers were manipulative profiteers who were damaging people's health and psyches to make money. And so there had been a kind of solid commitment that these people wouldn't be punished, even though there were you know, holes in, in the laws, Michelle's book points out, where people were already being punished for things like self-managed abortion. For the most part, when you saw new laws coming out, they didn't allow punishment of, of patients. But that's going away because I think the Supreme Court's emboldened the anti-abortion movement and the movement recognizes that to get something close to a meaningful prohibition, you absolutely are going to have to treat women as perpetrators, not victims. And so, you know, increasingly they are willing to look people in the face. And And that has been the narrative, right? I mean, that's the narrative that was leading up to the 2016 election. That's the narrative that was found uh, baked into the uh, Republican um, platform. 36 times abortion was mentioned um, in leading up to the 2016 election in the platform that was put forward by the Republican Party. And in each of these conversations, I think it's really important to note so that people don't see these as, oh, well, these are just sort of people who don't like Republicans. Nothing can be further from the truth. In 1973, uh, with Roe v. Wade, it was a seven to two opinion. Five of those justices were Republican appointed. Justice Blackman, who wrote the opinion in Roe v. Wade, was put on the court by Richard Nixon. Those who played a fundamental role in preserving Roe v. Wade and shaping the future course of abortion rights were Justices O'Connor and Kennedy. Again, both Republican appointed. And I think that history is important for a couple of reasons, not the least of which is that as there are young people and people who are not so young, but are trying to figure out how they should think about these issues and may find themselves to be conservative and could easily think that this has just been the history of uh, libertarianism in this country. This has been the history of republicanism in this country. And so this is what my party's all about. And I must support something that I really don't support. And the reality is, no, this is, these are kind of, you know, newer vestiges that have made their way into state level political platforms, into the judiciary. This was not exactly how Republicans expressed themselves in generations past. And you note in the article that many presidents, Republican presidents, have underlined the exception for rape and incest as something that, even as they oppose abortion, 
they see as an important exception. So this seemed to be a real departure from that as well. I, for me, I, I hear all of the rhetoric of children and babies. And it is interesting that in the case of incest, you're talking about pitting a child against another child. Um, yet that really didn't seem to be part of the of the narrative, certainly in the court. Um, <laughs> it, do you think that was? St- I, I, I I'm 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 sorry. I'm sorry. I'm hesitating to ask this question, but I mean, why not? I mean, Justice Sotomayor seemed to be speaking to the public in some ways during oral arguments. Why would she not underline that more, knowing that such a high percentage of Americans of all parties, backgrounds, and faiths have this as an exception? Well, you know, Susan, to to your point, my sense is that there's been so much that's been normalized that we don't pay attention to in terms of linguistic and practice associated with abortion. For example, uh, violence. There's really not uh, much expression about violence yet. Violence has been so normalized around this particular healthcare in, in this country that it's shocking and it's appalling. I think in 1973, if you had put before the justices that, oh, by the way, in the next 50 years, there will be at least or nearly 50 bombings of abortion clinics. Uh, How do we address that? That there would be arsons, that there would be threats, that there would be mass shootings, that there would be the killing of doctors who provide these services. I don't think that would have changed the opinion in Roe. I think that they, you know, seven to two, I think they wanted to protect the personhood of girls and women and provide a future for them. Um, but I think they would be alarmed. I think they'd be deeply alarmed. I think anybody, I think Congress would have been alarmed. I think in 1973, there could have been the potential passage of legislation that would have more robustly protected people who seek to utilize this constitutional right. I think there could have been legislation that would have been formed that let there be no bombings of any places where Americans get health care. Let there be no mass shootings and and this kind of targeting. So this takes us slightly away from your question about why didn't the justices pay more attention or even the lawyers litigating in this space. And I'd like to say that more generally, I'm disappointed by uh, our failure to take more seriously the violence behind anti-abortion movements, um, the um, co-optation of a nomenclature such as heartbeat bills when there are no hearts at all, uh, descriptions of uh, abortion after birth, which does not exist, right? There's so much that's polluted in the nomenclature. And then also what socially lands, you would think if you didn't pay attention to the health and science that an abortion was the most dangerous choice that a person could possibly have rather than it's the choice that actually is more likely to save your life than carrying a pregnancy to term. And you think you would completely not know that a person is 14 times more likely to die by carrying a pregnancy to term than by terminating it if you just left it to the the rhetoric. And Mary, I think that you're going to speak to some of this. Yeah, I mean, I think they didn't bring up rape and incest because they knew that a a majority on the court wouldn't care. I mean, I think if you listen to the oral argument, um, I mean, there, there came a point when I was listening to the argument when I 
I began to feel sort of bad um, for uh, Elizabeth Prelogger and Julie Reichelman because they, they kept bringing up points about equality for women and pregnant people and just the court was just not interested at all. It was pretty clear. So I think this, this felt as if the justices may have already had things they've drafted. I think they've thought about this, not just in this case, but for much of their careers. Um, the clearest, I mean, there was complete indifference to slash no questions asked about equality much at all beyond Sotomayor's questions. Um, and so I, I don't think it would have been effective because I don't think there are many justices who were concerned about that. And I think to the extent they were, you saw that reflected in Amy Coney Barrett's questions, which assumed essentially that equality concerns aren't a problem anymore because women can give up children for adoption without criminal consequence through um, baby Moses laws, which um, have are you know applicable in blue as well as red states. So. I mean, my reading of it was just that it, would, it wouldn't be effective advocacy to talk about rape and incest victims because the justices are not concerned about rape and incest victims. Yeah, I don't know about that. I mean, I hear you, Mary, and I think that that's a really convincing argument that you make. And yet at the same time, I think that the failure to actually put that front and center leaves it out of the record. I think it forces, it, it forces the justices to have to do something. Now, what is your response? And now it exposes something else. And I think that that's been part of the problem, in, you know, generationally, in, in recent generations with regard to reproductive health rights and justice, that there hasn't been the pushback, tell us really who you are, put it out front and center, you know, what would you have for your own children, right? Like, so let's, let's read based on your response we can know now exactly who you are as a parent. And I know that that may sound as if it is um, off course from thinking about uh, jurisprudence, but uh, but it raises these kinds of questions. What would you do, justices, fill in the blank for your own nieces, for your own children? Or are you making exceptions for the rest of the country, but you would, of course, do something different in your own household. And I do think that we have to demand those kinds of answers. Even when I think outside of this context, you think about Cecile Richards being dragged in front of Congress uh, after the uh, stitched together uh, nefariously obtained videos uh, that claimed that Planned Parenthood was selling, you know, fetus body parts, right? So she's called, dragged in front of Congress for hours having to give testimony. Of course, we we know that this was nefariously done. We know that this was not what Planned Parenthood was doing and whatnot. Uh, but at the same time, what's interesting is that lawmakers are not called to account. They're not called to account. Tell us about why you have such high rates of maternal mortality in your state. Tell us why in Mississippi, a girl like Renee Gibbs, who is 15 years old, was being prosecuted for depraved heart murder uh, in the wake of having a stillbirth. Tell us why in Mississippi you have such a significantly high portion of Black women who die from cardiac arrest during their pregnancies. Tell us what, you know, none of that is done. It's not. Now, whether they care or not, let's make it explicit that you really don't care because what they purport is that they do care. This is exactly the language that's come from the state of Mississippi, that we enact these kinds of laws because we care about women and we care about Black women. And the counter is never put to them. Show us how you care in light of these different facts coming from your state. And here we are listening. 
fill up the room with what it is that you have to say. And I think that that does something. It certainly helps with the political process. I'd love to see ads run after that with the kind of empty airspace that comes after putting the question squarely to them. And uh, and Michelle, your point about language and how language is co-opted was one of the things that really bothered me listening to the oral arguments. The idea that we care about children has to include 10-year-old victims of rape. So the fact that the, uh, I, I understand that the abortion rights side very much wants to emphasize women's equality. So do I. And I don't want to fall into the trap of uh, appealing to um, uh, older forms of honor and patriarchy and protection of women. But this is a political battle, and I was very, very surprised not to hear people take that arrow out of the quiver and say, these are children. This law has no exemption for those children who have are innocent victims, to use the language that you were alluding to earlier. It seemed like something that could be effective and could put some of the justices at least on defensive in this bill without the exception. But again, I, I, I know. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. I think that some of it was a strategy question too. I mean, I think there was, my sense is from, from things I've heard and behind the scenes stuff that there was a sense in which the folks challenging Mississippi's law were still trying to, to reach these justices, right? That this was not setting up a historical record to prove how you know, horrible it was if the court um, let this law stand or repudiated Roe. And I think then the assumption was these justices are much more likely to be concerned about their own reputations, the image of the court, these sort of institutional considerations than they would about children and rape and incest victims. I think it, it turned out, uh, I think, one, that, that probably was naive to begin with, um, but many people miscalculated on that. And, and two, I think there was belatedly a recognition that the argument could have, I think, as Michelle so powerfully puts it, been an opportunity more to to make the case to the public as to what it would mean to reverse Roe um, and what it would mean for children in particular. Um, and uh, there was a missed opportunity there, but I think it was probably because of a, a strategic miscalculation, most likely. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash NBN50 to get 50% off. And I think that Mary is right, that these are strategic uh, calculations that are made. And and so, and so sometimes they're just so wrong. In the backdrop of this, and, and I refer again to a Renee um, 
Gracie Sherman and and her work in a recent podcast that that I did in my uh, on the issues with Michelle Goodwin. I I interviewed her, and in doing the brief, the amicus brief uh, that represented so many uh, women of color, the first law firm that they used didn't want their stories. <laughs> she said, well, this is, we're, we're talking about Mississippi. We're talking about the people who are most disparately harmed as being, you know, poor and black women. And the idea is that black women shouldn't be a part of the strategy, that black women and their suffering and their socioeconomic status and their lives are, are not about the strategy. And I think that that is what is part of what has been so wrong in terms of the strategizing and the backdrop of what has happened. In my book, I write about, you know, part of the failure of, you know, the movement. And I, I don't want to frame it as just a kind of one. There are many kinds of silos of movements within a reproductive rights movement. But certainly, when you think about civil rights, it wasn't rooted in just Brown. There was this understanding that you had to pay attention to accommodations, to housing, to employment, to even recreation, being able to go to a park and swim in a pool. And that created civil rights, not a civil right. And so much of this movement, we have to be honest, it's been uh, white-led, uh, it's been white woman led. Many of the people who've been able to lead in this space have been people who have come from more privileged backgrounds. Um, and many of them are people who were able to go to some of the most elite law schools in the nation. And that's great in one hand in terms of being able to show uh, competency, a certain level of competency, competency. But what it has dramatically missed <laughs> is understanding that reproductive rights is more than just access to abortion and to be mindful about what this means in terms of contraception, sex education, what this meant in terms of efforts to criminalize. And it it is so sad to see, to look back through the records and to participate as I have across various uh, movements and organizations in this space and to just see the absence of the organizations that had deeper pockets, had legal staffs, that just simply didn't invest in the 1980s and 90s in seeing black women as the canaries in the coal mine in seeing that when uh, police were engaging with uh, nurses and doctors to obtain patient information that patients thought would be confidential, that that too was part of the movement. And that these women, though their lives may have been complicated and slightly messy, were also part of the movement. It was a big gap and a failure in strategy. And sadly, in many ways, one will continue to see strategic failures uh, if we don't pay closer attention to those whose lives are most deeply affected and get on the ground with this. So well said. I have have no words there, so I'll just move on to my next question, because I think that is, uh, has been uh, noted in many political sci- from uh, in political science literature, this this not engaging and particularly not engaging beyond the needs of white women's access to surgical abortions and thinking so narrowly. Um, yeah, it's in the historical record very clearly too. I mean, some of the most depressing things you can read are the the archival record on the Hyde Amendment, right? Because there are these moments when you see people in groups like Narol and Planned Parenthood saying, "Well, you know, we really, we really ought to care about this access thing, right? This is kind of important." 
And then you'll see someone writing back and saying, well, you know, but donors really don't care and we really need to raise money. So we need to talk about bans because donors aren't affected by the Hyde Amendment. Or you see them saying, well, you know, we need these politicians in Congress to care. And they don't they love the Hyde Amendment. The Hyde Amendment, they think it's great. It's this bipartisan win. And so over and over again in the archival record, you see people saying, well, maybe we should care about people of color. And then you see pushback essentially saying it's too costly. It's too inconvenient. It's bad strategy. So we'll worry about that later. And of course, that's been, you know, I think historically been the attitude for decades. Um, Let me move us to something that happened last week, because this just keeps changing. Um, Last week, the court ruled that SB8, Texas's vigilante enforced abortion law, would remain in place. And the justices allowed very limited individual lawsuits to go forward. Uh, SB8 criminalizes abortion after six weeks. It makes exceptions for, quote unquote, medical emergencies. The law provides $10,000 bounties and reimbursed legal fees to individuals who identify those aiding and abetting an abortion. Um, Mary and Michelle Murray were interviewed for a very comprehensive New York Times article that I'll link in the show notes. And I'll also link, Michelle mentioned earlier, her interview with podcast uh, with Renee, and I'll also link that in the show notes. Um, The mechanism that Texas officials created is controversial. And this week, uh, the governor of California, Gavin Newsom, announced that he'll seek to use the mechanism to enforce some gun laws in California. Uh, Mary, you've written that this decision on SB8, quote, invites an era of constitutional chaos, unquote. Would you explain why you think that's true and how this bounty mechanism can be used beyond abortion? What what both of you think about uh, Newsom's move to say that he'll use it too? Sure. I mean, so the the mechanism um, relies on the limits that are placed on um, when you can sue states in federal court. Um, And historically, there were very, very limited exceptions to that in the early 20th century in a bid to prevent states from nullifying federally recognized constitutional rights in a case called Ex Parte Young. The court held that uh, people could sue uh, state officials in federal court if they were enforcing potentially unconstitutional laws. So uh, the folks in Texas behind SB8, Jonathan Mitchell, who's the former Solicitor General of Texas, uh, Mark Lee Dixon, who's the founder of the so-called Sanctuary City for the Unborn Movement, um, and Senator Brian Hughes, who's also responsible for a lot of the uh, um, sort of voting rights restrictions in Texas, came up with the idea that there was a loophole in Ex parte Young. So if you could say there was no state official enforcing this law, then you could keep suits out of federal court. That, of course, doesn't mean you couldn't bring any kind of constitutional challenge, but it would be akin to a kind of game of whack-a-mole where you would have to bring the case, bring a constitutional defense up each time you get sued in federal court, um, which would make it very unappealing for abortion providers to continue doing these procedures in Texas. And we've already seen that what happened in Texas when this law passed was that many providers just stopped offering care after six weeks, um, which is not tantamount to entirely eliminating abortion, but pretty darn close. I mean, it at the in a best case scenario, it gives people basically a week to figure out that they've they're pregnant and decide to have an abortion and put together the money to do it and go through a waiting period and so on. So I mean, it's it's not technically impossible, but it's pretty close. So um, the question really, I think, when oral argument happened in this SBA case. You saw people like Brett Kavanaugh seeming concerned, obviously not about the right to abortion, because we, we have reason to believe they don't think there is a right to abortion, but instead about 
how the SB8 model could be applied to rights that Kavanaugh cares about, like the right to bear arms or freedom of religion and so on. But the justices didn't really seem that concerned about that in this ruling. Um, They did, as you mentioned, Susan, allow suits to go ahead against these four Texas licensing officials, but that was basically because of a slip up in the Texas law. The law mentioned um, that nothing in it detracted from the state's ability to enforce other abortion laws. And licensing officials in Texas explicitly are charged with enforcing other abortion laws, including the part of the health and safety code that includes SB8. So the court essentially said, these folks, by your own admission, seem to have the ability to enforce the law, so you can sue them. But the logical extension of that is, if there was no slip up, and a state had airtight language saying states can't enforce the law, you can do this, you can nullify constitutional rights whenever you want. Now, do I really think that, you know, Kavanaugh and Gorsuch are going to react the same way if there is a Second Amendment style SB8 coming out of California? No, I don't. And the reason I say that, I mean, I think that what you saw the liberal justices saying in the Dobbs oral argument was something that I think a lot of historians have believed for a long time, which is that the court is, of course, a partisan institution to a degree. It always has been. But the idea that the court does not want to be viewed as a partisan institution has acted as a sort of check on what the court is willing to do and when, because the court wants to be perceived as above the partisan fray and in doing so to sort of preserve its institutional legitimacy and its popularity. I don't think this court particularly cares. I mean, I think you saw the liberal justices saying, isn't it going to make this court appear partisan? And I think the the response from some of the conservative justices was, so what, right? I mean, we're here to do what we as conservatives think is the principled thing to do. And if it's unpopular, we don't care. And if it makes the court look partisan, we don't care. And so it's quite possible, I think, very possible that if other states adopt SB8 style laws, the court will find some way to distinguish them if it isn't the right to abortion, because there's not, I think, the same concern about the court's legitimacy for these justices that we would have expected to see or that we would have seen in years past. Yesterday, the FDA lifted a major restriction on access to abortion pills. Medication abortion can be used for pregnancies up to 10 weeks, roughly gestation. It requires two different pills and accessing the first pill has been highly restricted in the United States, requiring women to come to get it rather than have it mailed to their homes. As the Supreme Court seems poised to be restricting uh, abortion access, this move by the FDA seems to be opening it up, yet there are already laws in place banning such pills in some states. Can you explain a little bit about why medication abortion has this unique in-person rule and what might be the effects uh, of removing it before we talk about whether this would really give uh, full access and some of the issues um, involved with it? There's a young scholar named Allison Whelan who's doing a fellowship at the University of Pennsylvania Law School who has an article forthcoming uh, that captures a, a significant angle of this. And what we've seen over time is that there's been political capture within a variety of our agencies. It's not just been the uh, FDA, it's been other agencies. That is to say that sometimes there are political influences that uh, make their way into the decision-making that come from our agency. Sometimes that's top-down, such as the executive playing an oversized role and really putting the thumb on the scale for the agencies. 
Sometimes that comes because we have outsider insiders, meaning people who've come from outside industries who make their way into the FDA and bring their agendas through. I think it's important to underscore that uh, during COVID-19, where we have seen underlying institutional and infrastructural inequalities come alive, right, it's really exposed those dynamics. It did so in this space, too. Let's be clear that during the Trump administration of more than 22,000 drugs, including hardcore narcotics, uh, the rule was that to protect the health and safety of individuals who needed those particular prescriptions, drugs, et cetera, that they could be delivered to them through the mail. The one lone exception was within this specific space. One can not read that in any other way than as part of a partisan political agenda about abortion, requiring that uh, people who uh, would seek to terminate their pregnancies had to go out during COVID when we didn't even know just how we knew it was already a deadly virus, but we didn't know how deadly. And so what we see now is a reversal of that FDA a decision that actually would bring it more in line <laughs> with uh, where the FDA uh, already had been with regard to 22,000 other drugs. And Mary, I don't know if you want to speak to that more, but that at least provides part of the backdrop. Yeah, I mean, so the the backstory, sort of basic, like, why do we, why do movements care about this, um, dates to the 90s. Uh, which was the peak, as Michelle mentioned earlier, of violence against abortion doctors and patients and clinics. There were two doctors murdered in back-to-back years in 1993 and 1994. And there had always been a quest among supporters of access to abortion and reproductive health and reproductive rights and justice for a way of avoiding abortion clinics, which had become a source of stigma and shame and violence. And so uh, there was RU486, one of the pills in this two-pill protocol, had been widely used in Europe for some time. I think there was something like over 250,000 women in Europe who'd already had abortions using this drug in a two-pill protocol by this time. And so there was this push to have abortion sort of untethered from clinics. And that, of course, raised considerable alarm for the anti-abortion movement, which be- believed that that would lead to a, a big spike in abortions. Um, and so there was a fight, you know, to boycott companies that would make these medications stateside. Um, there was, as Michelle mentioned, capture of FDA. Um, there was effort to pass laws or reinvigorate laws requiring that abortion be performed only by licensed doctors. Um, there was the start of the kinds of laws you see now, sort of state-specific laws banning what we now consider something like either telehealth abortion or pharmacist involvement in abortion and so on. And I think the stakes were always that um, fewer people are going to get abortions if they have to go to clinics because clinics could be a source of public exposure if you're in a conservative community. They can be a source. There's certainly it's going to be an unpleasant experience in many instances. You may worry about violence. And so the the prospect of sort of at-home self-managed or telehealth abortions everyone always believed would be a game changer. And of course, that's all the more true now in in a world where um, abortion is not likely going to be legal in one state. So now we're going to be thinking about, you know, is, can Alabama criminalize someone having a a, a telehealth abortion in California, right? Um, Or 
traveling to California to have a non-telehealth abortion. So I think um, this this move by the FDA is going to raise a lot of very important legal questions about whose law gets to prevail and whether one state can criminalize conduct that's legal in other states. And I mean, if you look at current Supreme Court doctrine on this, you would probably say the answer is no. There's a handful of much older rulings dealing with advertising for abortion that seem to suggest, including the Bigelow opinion, that you can't criminalize something that's legal in another state. But that's not the position, has not historically been the position of some of the court's conservative justices. So William Rehnquist, for example, in that case, dissented and said, usually who gets to decide whether your conduct is criminal or not is not based on where the conduct happened, but based on where you live, which would then suggest you can, in fact, criminalize somebody having a medication abortion out of state. So I don't think we know the answer to that yet. Um, We haven't seen it tested, but I think we will. So I think the FDA's move also potentially is going to open up a lot of new fronts of legal conflict if, as we expect, the court does reverse Roe this summer. The other thing that I would add that Mary is is, uh, speaking to right now is the level of innovation that is taking place in law so deeply concentrated around the spaces that involve um, matters of reproductive health rights and justice and also LGBTQ equality. It's very interesting because within law, we teach cases that are hundreds of years old every year, right? Is there sort of the narrative of American law other than what we see with civil rights law and the kind of burst of equality jurisprudence coming about in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Otherwise, certain principled areas of civil procedure, constitutional law, contracts, etc., they're centuries old. The area where we see such robust <laughs> uh, novelty coming about, this sort of new wave, all, happens to be in criminal punishment uh, and abortion bans, right? It, it is very interesting to see the space of innovation in law right now or around questions uh, that contest the uh, privacy uh, of particularly, I mean, this is not privacy and related to things that people male identifying most are concerned about, such as vasectomies and whatnot, but those matters that happen to be related uh, primarily with uh, women's reproductive health and those who can, can become pregnant. Um. It's such a privilege to talk with you, too. Uh, You have so much deep knowledge on this issue, and there are a million questions that I have that I have not asked. But um, I need a last question, and I think it's going to be, what is it at this point that listeners do to keep themselves best informed? Uh, We know that a lot is coming next. We don't know where it what it will look like from the grassroots, from the executive, from the legislature, from the states, from cities. We really don't know. But how is it that you think people can keep engaged and where should they be looking to 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 keep themselves informed in the best way possible? Yeah, I, I can. I mean, I think um, a good... I think following people on Twitter is actually not a bad idea. I mean, I would definitely say follow Michelle on Twitter, follow people who are experts to this, because I think there are certainly media outlets I trust. Michelle has a podcast that's great. I mean, I obviously trust media outlets that have published my own stuff, or I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't have published it, hopefully. Uh, but I think there's a sort of nice democratizing effect of Twitter. So if you find people on Twitter who study this, 
very deeply, that can be a great way to get access to information quickly. Um, and sometimes I think that there's there can be concerns sometimes that people in the media who are on the Supreme Court beat have a vested interest in making the Supreme Court look better maybe than it should. And so I think getting a, a variety of sources is important. Um, I think it's also, if you can, if you are comfortable, I think it's also helpful to read the material yourself and draw your own conclusions. In addition, if you're an academic, particularly in addition to reading um, glosses on it from people who study this issue deeply, because I think sometimes there's a spin put on this that makes these stories probably less disturbing than they should be. Yeah, and I'll just add to that. It's so funny that Mary said that people should follow me on Twitter because the first thing that came to mind, Susan, the question that you asked, it's like people should read Mary Ziegler, right? Um, that's what they should be spending time doing. I, I think Mary's absolutely right that there is a democratizing force that has come about through social media for as much as we could critique social media. And I think that there is definitely space for the critique. I think that there is also um, the way in which people can get information straight from the sources that are deeply involved in the empirical studies and analyzing uh, the case law who are adjacent to the civil society organizations that are working in these spaces. I think we also can't divorce this conversation from other things that are taking place. For example, if you care about thinking about uh, reproductive futures and rights to autonomy, privacy, equality, et cetera, then you must be concerned about voter suppression taking place in the United States. You must be concerned about the rule of law. You must be concerned about the future of our democracy. And that means paying attention to electoral politics. That means paying close attention to not just what's happening in this space, but who's running for your local school board, because that determines whether sex education is going to be taught in schools that are near you. Uh, that means being concerned about other kinds of local offices and not just that at the national level. And for m many people, I hope this means also greater diversity in terms of people who are going to be running for office as well. I mean, I could tell you spend money with abortion funds and people should do that. Um, I can tell you just as Mary did, you know, to pay attention to certain things, but I think the political process is really where we have to put uh, deep investment and involvement. And that's something that I've been saying over and over again. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think also paying attention to the way all of these things are related, right? I mean, questions about campaign finance, about, I mean, that's what my new book is about, but voting campaign finance, vaccine mandates, it's not just the same people who are involved in religious liberty. It's not just the same people who are involved in these struggles. Often it's because they come back in some ways to abortion. So I think finding ways to see some of those threads and pull on them is really helpful too. Um, well, thank you so much. Uh, there's so many other things that we didn't uh, touch on. Uh, you, you both have mentioned in the podcast, but also in your writings that public opinion may be on one side, but things like the gerrymander or the ability to funnel funds to candidates can mean that what is wanted by the majority of Americans doesn't necessarily translate into the actions of the people who are elected by them. And voter suppression feeds right into that as well as the gerrymander. Um, Michelle Goodwin and Mary Ziegler, it has been a real privilege to have this conversation with you. Everything that's been mentioned by either Mary or Michelle will be will have a link in the show notes, uh, including the link to signing up for Michelle's podcast as well. So thank you both so much for taking the time to talk to us today on 
Postscript. Thank you, Susan. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.